Welcome to Getting Healthcare Right, a bi-monthly podcast about the business of healthcare. Brought to you by TriHealth and hosted by Jamie Smith, president and publisher of the Cincinnati Business Courier. In this podcast series, we explore changes being made by some healthcare systems to provide care differently and in a way that benefits patients, employers, and entire communities all while costing less than traditional healthcare delivery. It's about getting healthcare right. Welcome to today's episode of Getting Healthcare Right with the Business Courier and sponsored by TriHealth. I am Jamie Smith, President and Publisher of the Cincinnati Business Courier. And today, my guest will be Dr. Chris Hainer, and we will talk about the use of AI as part of TriHealth's Pulmonary Embolism Response Team, and Dr. Doug Adams about the growing role AI is and will play in medicine. Dr. Hainer, Dr. Adams, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm going to go to Dr. Hainer. I understand AI is playing a greater role in diagnosing and treating pulmonary embolisms. First off, what is a pulmonary embolism? So pulmonary embolism, generally uh, starting because of a blood clot in the leg, which can occur because of several different factors like uh, pregnancy, surgery, travel, immobility. When it breaks off, it travels up through vessels in the uh, chest and then gets lodged in the lung. That's uh, the definition of a pulmonary embolus. Its impact is that when it lodges in the lung, it can decrease the output from the heart. Can you talk a little bit about TriHealth's approach and your PERT? or what's known as pulmonary embolism response team. Yeah, so we've formed this uh, actually several years ago, the rationale being that pulmonary embolism kills more patients than HIV, breast cancer, and motor vehicle accidents combined. So it's really a fairly prominent problem. And for probably about 40 years, we really only had two forms of treatment, either to give patients uh, blood thinners or occasionally to use clot busters. But within the last 10 years, there's been a real development of uh, alternative uh, methods and treatment options that are available. And so the need arose where we needed to have a multidisciplinary team to be able to approach these patients and to uh, assess them and devise uh, the best treatment. And that's what the pulmonary embolus response team does. And talk a little bit about how AI has changed that, the evolution within the PERT team. So the diagnosis of PE starts with a uh, CT scan of the chest, which is an X-ray where contrast is given to highlight the blood vessels so that you can locate whether there is or is not a blockage and the extent that it's uh, causing problems. And this is where AI comes in because it's very good at being able to do visual recognition. It may be still lagging behind in terms of, quote, thinking, end quote, but in terms of spatial recognition, just like the face on your phone, it's very good at that. And so what this allows us to do is when somebody has a CT scan uh, and they go through uh, radiology, that image gets uploaded onto the cloud. And then if a pulmonary embolus is detected, uh, it's immediately uh, alerts this pulmonary embolus response team, uh, oftentimes even before the radiologist has had a chance to review the film. Um, So it really kind of gets us called into action much sooner than the conventional historical methods would have. You talked a little bit about, uh, you know, it's faster access, but let's talk a little bit about the, the patient experience. Is there any effect on the patient? Are we getting more precise treatments? Any other results that you're seeing with using this? Sure. So with the uh, software application that we have, 
the image gets immediately displayed onto our mobile devices. And then we all have the chance to uh, look at it directly, uh, whether we're at home or in the office or at a restaurant. Data comes across with their vital signs, their temperature and their heart rate and blood pressure and those kinds of things. And then that PE response team that's notified all has the ability to instantly get onto a chat function where we can communicate with each other. So while the patient is still in the emergency room, you already have uh, a group of experts from uh, pulmonary, critical care, vascular surgery, et cetera, who are already discussing the case and trying to implement the game plan much quicker. Historically, this is something that could take anywhere from six to 14 hours. And now we're being able to get that chat going and get a, a plan formalized oftentimes within a half an hour. Wow, that's incredible. How long has the PERT team been using AI in this method? So the PERT team was more sort of loosely formed um, probably five or six years ago. But with the uh, advent of the uh, software and the uh, AI development, we really formalized that about a year and a half ago. And it's gone very well. We get cases probably at least one a week where uh, the full team is implemented across TriHealth to determine uh, treatment plans. Now, obviously, you've talked about, you know, kind of the time frame being turned down from six to 14 hours down to an hour. What else are the patients seeing and benefiting from using the system? They're having more access to uh, more advanced technologies. So when I mentioned that blood thinners and clot busters were the original cornerstones of therapy, now there are a number of catheters that can be used either to uh, dissolve the clots uh, through administration of medication uh, or in many cases to immediately aspirate and suction out the, uh, the clot uh, so that their uh, impact and performance is, is uh, improved and they can feel better uh, instantly in many cases. Dr. Adam, let's switch over to you. I understand part of your practice includes using low-dose CT scans to detect early-stage lung cancer in patients. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. The low-dose CAT scanning is a form of screening for lung cancer that was validated scientifically in about 2011 and is gradually working its way into standard of care. It depends upon a person at risk getting a CT scan and then experienced eyes reviewing that. Because, for instance, if you scan 100 people, 40 to 50 of them will have something, a nodule, a mass, a tumor, whatever you want to call it, but only three to four of those will be cancer. So it becomes a process of evaluating nodules to try to make sure that we're accurately directing people in terms of a repeat study or a biopsy or just surveillance. The application of AI specifically in this field is using about 300 subvisual cues to help stratify that. Those cues have been determined by a retrospective analysis, an algorithmic analysis of the study upon which the whole low-dose CAT scan was based to begin with, about 56,000 or so patients looking at their studies from the start to the finish of their therapy, which included the diagnosis. And so you have a very good body of education, if you will, to educate this brain. So it takes all the information that it's gathered from those evaluations and applies it to an individual's nodule, and it generates essentially a statistical probability of it being a malignancy. So what you find is that you're able to increase accuracy in the predicting of cancer by about 28% and in avoiding unnecessary procedures, and in other words, identifying one that's not cancer by about 40%. So it's very, very promising. In a lot of ways, the application of AI in medicine in general 
follows these same principles and actually have been doing it for years, not necessarily with AI though. I mean, when everyone goes to a physician, they want the most experienced, intelligent doctor they can find, of course, right? To bring a body of knowledge to bear on their problem. The multidisciplinary approach that Dr. Hainer mentioned is that same thing taken to the next level. You've got more than one practitioner. You have, for instance, in lung cancer, you have a pulmonologist, a lung surgeon, an oncologist, a radiation oncologist, a radiologist, all bringing their knowledge to bear on the same problem. AI takes that one step further in that it builds a brain based on the experience of thousands of patients and their pathology and the results. And so everybody kind of goes, oh, wow, AI medicine is kind of scary. It's really not. It's we're taking the principles we're already applying and just expanding it exponentially and bringing more information to bear on whatever the problem is, where it's sepsis, heart failure, pulmonary emboli, lung cancer, whatever. And a lot of these things run in the background and they are simply informational algorithms that inform the caretakers, hey, this person is perhaps in the process of decompensating from pulmonary emboli, or perhaps this lung nodule is more malignant than we anticipate. And it notifies the physician or the provider that, hey, this is a person on whom X intervention statistically, based on the experience of thousands and thousands of patients, might be beneficial. It doesn't direct the care. It doesn't do the care. It doesn't supersede the human intervention. It adds to the information brought to bear on the problem. Well, that's incredible. And that kind of goes along with all the podcasts we've done with TriHealth all year long is just, you know, talking about how to get in front of care and how to know as much as possible as you can about the patient's condition and, you know, any kind of treatments. You know, as you guys think about AI and how it has folded into your practice and how it will fold into your practice even more in the future, talk a little bit about what abilities you think AI is going to offer when treating your patients that maybe aren't currently available right now. And we'll start with you, Dr. Adams. Two ways. One, I think it's going to increase the accuracy of what we do. I'm an interventional person, right? I do stuff. So I like to do stuff to the right people and not do it to the right people. And so I think the ability to correctly identify who needs something done and who doesn't is invaluable. And I guess the second way it'll apply is that in the care of patients in the perioperative period, we're always trying to anticipate potential issues and keep people on a recovery pathway. The ability to identify earlier that a person is stepping off that pathway, intervene in such a way that their deviation from recovery is less and therefore their recovery is faster is very, very important. I think that'll have particular application in open heart recovery. And there's a very defined pathway and we're very, very vigilant about watching to see who's stepping off that. If you can pick that up six hours earlier, like with a pulmonary embolite that Dr. Hainer talked about, your interventions are going to be more effective in the patient. The impact on the patient will be significantly better. Dr. Hainer, your thoughts? Yeah, so from, from my perspective, I came up through the world of internal medicine and then did uh, pulmonary and, and critical care fellowships. And the one thing that's impressed me as I've gone through my career is the body of information that is out there is expanding exponentially. And it is impossible for any human being to know what is known, much less what is not known. And so I think that the role of artificial intelligence to help guide us and steer us into at least thinking better is certainly gonna be very important. 
How that gets pulled off is going to be a challenge, and it's going to require lots of different thought leaders to play into it. If you look at the internet, for example, there's a wealth of information at your fingertips. Simultaneously, there's a wealth of misinformation at your fingertips. Social media, you know, with Facebook may have been designed to uh, connect people and to integrate them. It certainly connected them. Whether it's integrated them or polarized them, I guess, is still open for debate. But I think that's where AI comes, the devil in the details. When we ask AI to do something that's not binary, like uh, thinking of, you know, like being able to determine is there or is there not a, a spot or a defect on the CT scan. But to take that the next step as to what are the possibilities, what kind of things need to be pursued, and then to bring that to the clinician's attention and have them work in conjunction with AI, sort of uh, using it as, a, as an accessory tool, as opposed to, uh, you know, letting it drive all manners of healthcare. I don't think we're going to get, I hope we're not going to get there. Uh, but I do think that there's an opportunity for this to uh, actually expand possibilities of and improve patient care in that way. I know a lot of people are very concerned too about, myself included, you know, you know is this going to become a Terminator scenario? There was an AI conference here last week in which leaders in the healthcare AI industry, both from industry, from federal government, from local government, from volunteers, from representatives of major medical groups, got together for three days to discuss specifically how do we manage this most effectively for patient benefit. So this isn't happening without a lot of interest on the part of people very committed to keeping it in the safe space. I was very impressed at the intelligence and the commitment of these folks that are being brought to bear on making sure this science is appropriately applied. Okay, you kind of started to answer my last question here, and that's just, are there any drawbacks out there to the physicians or even to the patients that we need to be aware of? The drawbacks are the misuse of this. And I think that's where, like Dr. Adams mentioned, it's at least early on somewhat uh, consoling to know that there's a lot of adults in the room. And I think that's going to continue to have to play out. At the end of the day, the patient is the center of everything we do. And I think that rather than getting enamored with uh, things that aren't patient-centric, I think that's a concern. And I think we have to continue to make sure that we put them first and foremost in terms of what we think, what we offer, how we talk about things. And then, you know, regardless of the diagnosis, you know, it's patients' preferences as to the treatment options and the choices. And I think they have to stay involved in this uh, beyond us just using uh, algorithms. I think one of the potential downfalls, and we've been sensitized to this by electronic medical records, EMR was great for culling information. It was terrible for communication. And I think those of us that have been at this for a while have seen how the expectation was this would be great, and it really didn't turn out to be in terms of facilitating that. So we've kind of stepped back and going, you know what, let's maintain that provider to provider, provider to patient communication. AI is no different. And there was an interesting study presented at this conference by Duke in which they had done this background AI in the case of sepsis. Initially, they tried just flashing something up on the EMR to the physician, hey, this patient is at risk. And they found that didn't work. Very, very low percentage were paid attention to. So what they inserted was a communication from a human to a human that took that alert and said to the provider, hey, look, this person is at risk. And they have found that the reinsertion of a human in this process made a huge difference in terms of efficacy. So no matter what, we have to be sensitive to the fact that this isn't a substitute for thinking and communication. It's just not. It's an augment to those two behaviors. 
You know, I'm going to close out my questions with just one final, and this is a, a similar question that I end each of our podcasts with. TriHealth is regularly touting the fact that the population health model is a staple to its care. How does finding ways to include AI in medicine adhere to TriHealth's population health model? And you can both answer it. Dr. Hainer, I'll start with you. You know, I think there's a lot of components to medicine. And this goes back to the point that I made where there's too much information to know. And what that means is, is that each patient, especially when they get more complicated, is going to require a team of doctors. And that team is going to have to use all methods available at their disposal and communicate to one another. And that's where population health you know, ironically, it, you think of it as a population, but it's a population of a bunch of N of ones. And I think that needs to be taken into consideration that for each given patient, there may be multiple nodes of interaction across numerous specialties and numerous departments, and that all has to be integrated. And to the extent that we can do that is going to determine the quality of care that we deliver. I agree with that. I think if you assume that the, the assemblage of information around a problem gives you better ability to treat it. The more people you have, the more information you have, the better. But the ability to collate that information, each of us is limited. So this essentially is a multiplier of our ability to assemble information and focus our interventions, a stratified intervention based on severity or based on the character of the disease, which we just, as an individual, don't have that capacity. That's what we're doing. I mean, as an experienced practitioner, I walk up to Mrs. Smith, who has this problem, and then Consciously or unconsciously, I bring all to, I bring to bear all my experience. AI is just a lot more experience applied to a population or an individual, either one. Those are two great answers and a great way to end our podcast. Dr. Hainer, Dr. Adams, I want to thank you both for joining us today. We will continue to follow the AI journey as well as just the total population health journey with TriHealth throughout this podcast and throughout other partnerships with TriHealth. I want to thank you for your knowledge and your thoughts today. Any closing uh, remarks, Dr. Hainer? I just want to thank you for uh, inviting us here and to be able to kind of get the word out uh, on uh, the role of AI in the future of uh, medicine. Thank you. Dr. Adams, how about you? Thank you very much for having us. It's an exciting topic. All right. Well, it's great to have professionals on like yourself to hear more about what TriHealth is doing to really get us truly on this population health journey. I want to thank our listeners today. If you've missed any of our other podcasts, please go to CincinnatiBusinessCourier.com. Go to the left toolbar on the top, click on Getting Healthcare Right under Partner Content, and you'll be able to see all the episodes that TriHealth and I have recorded over the past year, as well as a recent virtual forum on health equity. Again, thanks all for being here today and have a great day. Thank you for downloading Getting Healthcare Right, presented by the Cincinnati Business Courier and sponsored by TriHealth. To learn more, visit trihealth.com.